Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So we continue our study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're in the sixth beatitude today. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most influential pastors of the last century, said of this text that we are looking at today, quote, undoubtedly, this is one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. He also said of this passage, here we are face to face with one of the most majestic and yet one of the most solemnizing and searching statements which can be found anywhere in Scripture. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray together. Father, one thing have I asked of you, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord in your presence forever, to gaze upon your beauty. God, we want to see you this morning, so we're inviting you to come and cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of one of my favorite fantasy novels. Uh, it's called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and is written by Susanna Clark. It's set in early 19th century England, and the story opens when uh, practical magic has ceased in the land. It's vanished. It's been centuries since anyone practiced magic, and yet there were men in that day who called themselves magicians. Yet, Clark writes, quote, not one of them had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree made one mote of dust to alter its course or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this minor res reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical men in Yorkshire. She goes on to talk about how these magicians spent their days in lengthy arguments about theoretical magic and debating the merit of one spell over another and nitpicking the details of magic's history. And they would meet once a month to read what Clark describes as long, dull papers to one another. But then, Mr. Norrell showed up. And inviting all these so-called magicians to the cathedral in Yorkshire, Mr. Norrell did something they thought was unthinkable. He cast a true spell. One that made all the statues in the cathedral come to life. And they started shouting, some of them, and some of them started singing hymns that they had heard through the years. And others started telling stories about all the things they had seen as they stood guard over the cathedral. And they saw this person do this, and they saw this person cheat on this person. And they saw, so they were kind of confessing all these things that they had watched. And the magicians of Yorkshire stood speechless at this. They, they thought they had known magic because they knew all about it. But here, it actually was. They could see it, which meant the world was wildly different than they had believed it to be. It's a fun story, and I thought of that part of it because I think it's easy for us Christians to resemble these magicians of Yorkshire. 
We have a certain fluency of faith and a reputation as believers. We can talk the talk, debate text, nitpick theology. We even meet together regularly to listen to long, dull papers read to us. (laughs) But is there magic in our faith? Do we believe in the spiritually possible? Is there transcendent majesty? Is there the active presence of the living God? Here's where I'm going with all of this. We can be saved and still have a woefully inadequate understanding and experience of God. We can be saved, we can be real Christians, true Christians, confessing Christians, and still have a woefully inadequate understanding and experience of God, and that's why the promise that Jesus gives in our beatitude today is so precious and so powerful, because he promises we can actually see God really beholding him with eyes of faith. And if we see him, that changes everything. This is what happened to Job. His book opens telling us Job was, quote, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a solid Christian. He was a moral man. He was a God-fearing man but then suffering broke over his life like a tidal wave. And he began to question what he knew about God. He started to wrestle to understand God because now God didn't fit inside Job's box. And so chapter after chapter, he questions God and wrestles with God and tries to get his his arms around what God is doing in his life until finally the Lord appears in a whirlwind, something he can see, and says out of the whirlwind to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who shut the sea in with doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds and that a flood of waters might come down? Can you send forth lightning? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you give the horse his might? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And on and on the Lord goes until finally Job cries out, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you, but by the hearing of the ear, but now... My eyes see you. Job had known about God. He had even obeyed God. But when he actually saw God, Job came to understand the world was wildly different than he had believed. My prayer for us this morning is that God will do the same for us. Show us God. We're going to get to our text here in just a minute. But first, I want to invite you to turn with me back to Exodus chapter 33. I want to show you something here. I'm trying to show how incredible a promise it is and how helpful a promise it is. How helpful a promise it is that Jesus says we shall see God. 
There's hardly a more magnificent promise in scripture. And I wanna show you that, and Exodus 33 has helped me to see that, and so I'm, I'm hoping it will help you. I want you to look with me first in Exodus 33 at verse 11. This is, this is God and Moses interacting, verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine going into the tent of meeting and just as if to a friend conversing with the Lord? What an incredible privilege. Short of Jesus, I don't think anyone else in Scripture enjoyed this kind of regular intimacy with God. But still, in Exodus 33, we learn it's not enough for Moses. It's not enough. Moses wanted more. And I don't mean this in a greedy way. He's, he's not like a kid who's just wolfed down a bag of candy and is, is demanding more candy, Mom and Dad. I want more candy. He's more, like, he's more like, this is a good desire. He's more like a kid who's been hugged by his dad and says, I want another. Moses delighted in God, and so he pleads with God. Down in verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now think about that, because Moses has already seen the burning bush, the mighty signs in Egypt, the exodus and the Red Sea deliverance, the pillar of cloud and fire, the miraculous provisions in the wilderness, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So Moses has seen God act powerfully and graciously. He has already seen something of his glory, but Moses wanted more. He wanted to see the splendor of God's person. Please, Lord, show me your glory. Oh, that should be our prayer regularly. Please, Lord, show me your glory. I'm coming into church today, Lord. Please, show me your glory. Lord, I'm getting into my Bible in the morning. I'm barely awake. I got the dread of the day ahead of me. Please show me your glory, Lord. And I love this passage because I love what we learn here about God's glory. So now look with me. Next verse, verse 19. And he, being the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. Now I want you to see what God did there, okay? Moses begged to see God's glory, and the Lord answered and said, I will make all my what? Goodness. goodness pass before you. So God makes his goodness synonymous with his glory. That's fun to see. So what does that mean? that God makes his goodness synonymous with his glory. What's God saying here? What is his goodness? Well, technically speaking, goodness is that quality of being that satisfies a need, is useful to meet a need. Goodness is that quality of being that satisfies a need or is useful for meeting a need. So, so think about it, for example, a good knife a good knife is one that cuts cleanly. A good child is one who satisfies the desires of their parents. Or theologically, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? God called things good, like the sun and the moon and the stars, not just because they were pretty, but because they satisfied the need for which they were created. So they're good. And Adam and Eve, they're not just good because they're handiwork of God. And so, yeah, yeah I did a good job there. I, you know, nice work, me, good. No, he's saying they were made to be my image bearers. And at that, they're good. They're fit rightly for that need. I made them perfect for that. So you, you follow all this. God correlates glory and goodness, meaning something like this. The glory of the sun isn't just the glow of its brilliance, it's the goodness it gives us in the warmth and the light we see by and the gravity that keeps our atmosphere down so we can have air to breathe. Glory is need-meeting goodness. Glory is need-meeting goodness. It's satisfying excellence. And so God's glory isn't just the glow of his perfection. God, show me your glow. 
That's not what Moses is praying for. God, show me how you glow. He's saying, show me how your perfections thrill my soul and meet my needs. His glory is the way that all God's diverse excellencies meet all our varied needs. God's glory is his satisfying excellence, and that's what Moses wanted to see. Not just how perfect and amazing God is in his splendor, but how so thrilling and how need-satisfying God is. And the great and constant need of our soul is to see God like that. Nothing satisfies us like seeing him, and nothing stirs us like getting a glimpse of God. We need to see God, and so, and so what a very great and precious promise Jesus gives us in the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I hope you see what I'm doing with the pastor today. I'm trying to get at it backwards. I'm going in through the back door. Okay, I'm trying to show you how great it is to see God, and I'm hoping that awakens a desire in you. Okay, okay, I, I want that. I want to see the Lord, so how do I do it? I need a pure heart? Okay, how do I get one? To see the Lord, we must be pure in heart, and that's where the rubber meets the road. So I have two questions then I want to answer for us this morning. The first is, what is it to be pure in heart then? What is it to be pure in heart? The word pure here means clean. Uh, Meaning not mixed with something. It's not diluted. Think about pure water, pure spring water, or pure gold. It's not mixed with something. Maybe like a cold drink on a hot day, right? But if you put a bunch of ice in it and you let it sit there for a little bit, it gets watered down. Your Coke doesn't taste so cokey anymore. It tastes watery cokey. It's just not as good. It's not pure. So to be pure pure is free of additives, free of mixture, free of outside elements. Okay, so that's pure. What about the word heart Jesus uses here? Well, in the Bible... The heart is this this complicated thing. We're not talking about the organ in your your chest. We're talking about the the seat of your desires. The seat of your desires and your your thoughts and your feelings. It's the, the core of who you are, your center. Your heart is you. It's who you really are. John Piper calls the heart your invisible root, just like Jacob was sharing. It's your invisible root. And it matters even more to God than your visible branches do. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Or to switch metaphors, Proverbs 4.23 says, The heart is the wellspring of life, wellspring of life, and everything you do flows from it. So the heart is critical in the Bible. It's critical to God what you want and think in the deep private recesses of your soul is what God cares about the most. And so now putting the two together, what is it to be pure in heart means not just to have a clean heart, but it means to have an undiluted heart. An unmixed heart in your desires, in your thinking, in your feelings. Let me try to break this open for you from another way. The closest Old Testament parallel to this beatitude is in Psalm 24. You don't have to turn there. I've got it on slides for you. Uh, But let's look at a couple verses in this psalm. First in verse 3, David asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can enter into the Lord's holy presence? Who can see him? The answer is verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now notice here, okay, so you can see a pure heart is here. And we can see what a pure heart is in the phrases that follow it in verse 4. It's a heart that is not lifted up to what is false. You see that? Not lifted up, not lifted his soul or his heart up to what is false. That's, a, that's an idol. That's the things that are not God. And a pure heart is one that does not swear deceitfully. You know, while it's free of deceit, free of duplicity. You know what deceit is? Deceit is when you will two things. You want two things. You will to win the argument with your spouse on Sunday morning on the way to church at all cost. And you will people to think that you're a loving, happy family with no problems. And so you come in all smiles and say you're good. I hope that wasn't an amen like you want that. <laughs> I don't think that was whoever said that. That's duplicity. That's deceit. That's impurity of heart. And as it relates to the Lord, it's a division in your loyalty, in your heart. It's a, it's a compromised commitment to God. You, you want God, but you also want fill in the blank. You want his will, but you want your will also. That's an impure heart. But purity heart is to will one thing. To want one thing, to be committed to one thing. And according to verse 6 of, of Psalm 24, just a couple of verses later, that one thing is identified to seek the face of the God of Jacob, to see him. Now we find, that's Psalm 24, now we find the same meaning essentially of the pure in heart in James chapter 4 in the New Testament. So flip, you don't have to flip there, I've got it overhead, but well, actually no, to turn there. I'll put it on the overhead too, but if you've got your Bibles, I, I just... You know, there's nothing better than actually seeing this and marking this in the Bible. You just learn. So he, James is towards the end of your Bible. It's uh, between Hebrews and 1 Peter. And we're going to look at James chapter 4. I do have it on the slides overhead if you don't have your Bible. Um, but James, uh, James, James chapter 4 verse 8 says this. Wonderful, just a wonderful promise here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Awesome, yes, great, okay. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now you'll notice that's just like Psalm 24. Clean hands, pure heart, there's references to both. Cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts in order to draw near to God, in order to seek his face, in order to see him. So there's a, there's a direct parallel. And notice also that those who have not purified their hearts, according to James chapter four, verse eight, are the double-minded. So just like in Psalm 24, the impure will two things. They want two things. They're double-minded. They pursue two things. And James goes even further. He says, okay, you want to really know your problem? Look up at verse 4. You'll see who he's actually talking about in verse 4. Verse 4 is where the real problem is. He says, you adulterous people. Literally, he says, you adulteresses. I mean, he's talking about spiritual adultery, not, not physical. You adulteresses, you do not know, or you, yeah, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, the double-minded man of verse 8 has his heart divided between the world and God. He wants both. Like a man who has a wife and a mistress. On the, on the other hand, purity heart is to will one thing. God. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of heart is where I'm saying this phrase. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And I think that's a great definition so long as that one thing is God. 
to be singularly focused on him, to be completely absorbed with him, to be solely committed to him, and to purely desire him. That's what it means to be pure in heart. And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones called this one of the most solemnizing and searching statements found anywhere in scripture. Because so often, we're not, right? We're just not. And that brings us to our our second question that we need to answer this morning. How do I get a purified heart then? How do I get a purified heart? We've got a heart problem. Not a conduct problem, we have a heart problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's terminally ill. Who can understand it or or who can know it? To see God, we have to be pure of heart, but we aren't pure in heart. Our hearts are duplicitous. Our hearts are deceitful. They are divided. They are terminally ill. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When Paul describes unbelievers in Ephesians 4, he identifies them as they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And James 1, 26 acknowledges you can think you're religious when actually you're deceiving your own heart. And so all this leads the poor in spirit, the contrite, the convicted, to cry out, with the words of of Proverbs 20, verse nine, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Can anyone say that? That they have done that, that they have purified their heart? Has anyone in here purified their heart from sin? In that sense, Jesus' beatitude is totally beyond our reach. And yet, our Lord, (laughs) our Lord does not give vain promises. Here's good news. You ready for it? Our Lord does not give vain promises. It is divinely possible what he promises. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That is to say, God must create in us a pure heart. And the great promise of this in the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here God's not promising just a new compartment inside of you. He's promising you a whole new you. A gutting out of the old and a removing and putting in, taking out that old heart and giving you that new, soft, fleshly, loving heart. A new seat of desire and thought and feeling that can hold desires and thoughts and feelings of God. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says the same saving act of God. He describes it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our lights to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, the ultimate good made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ultimate good that's offered us in the gospel is this. Purified hearts that can see God. That's what Jesus bought for you. A purified heart that can see God. Cleansed hearts that can now be admitted into his presence. Purified hearts that can now be satisfied with his glory. Enlightened hearts that can now see and be comforted by his grace. 
And all this makes Jesus' beatitude explode with life and possibility because what Jesus prescribes, Jesus provides. He does not mandate something. He does not also offer to us. He knows that we are poor in spirit. He knows we have nothing to offer the God, but he has everything to offer to God. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The only way we're going to see God is if he first purifies our hearts with the blood of Jesus washing over us, the light of Christ turned on in our darkened hearts. And so I have to ask, has he done that for you? Have you received it from him? This week, I read a story about Mrs. Pinnaca, a woman who was born blind. And I tried to imagine just never seeing light. I was talking about this with my kids last night. Can you imagine never seeing light or colors? Just never seen red, green, yellow, blue. Just not seen it. How do you describe that to somebody who's never seen it? You ever, I, never seen the people that you love. She got married, didn't know what he looked like. Lord, I hope he's okay. I'm like, <laughs> she didn't look on the outward appearance, she looked on the inward. She was like, God. Well, in 1981, when Mrs. Pinnacle was 62 years old, she had a, a relatively minor surgery removing congenital cataract from her eye, left eye, and for the first time ever, she could see. And commenting on her newfound sight, 62 years, she said, everything was so much bigger and brighter than I had ever imagined. And she says, now I can hardly wait for my alarm to go off in the morning so I can jump out of bed, wash my face, put on my glasses, and watch the, color, or the changing colors of the sky in the morning. I can't imagine what it was like for Mrs. Pinnaca to finally see the faces of her family or the shafts of a setting sun or rising sun or the marvel of a bird flying over your head. I can't imagine how much more alive she must have felt but here's the irony of her story. She got her sight in 1981. Well, the saving technique, the surgical technique uh, that they used to restore her sight had been available back since the 1940s. So for 40 years, Mrs. Pinnaca could have been seen but didn't know. She was needlessly blind. And my appeal to you is do not be needlessly blind. The saving technique for your heart has been made available to you. Jesus has come to wash your heart clean. He's come to give you a new heart. All you have to do to be made pure in heart is believe. Receive what Jesus offers by faith. That's the, the first and foundational way we get a purified heart. We must be born again. And I invite you right now, you don't have to do anything except in your heart, open it up to Jesus and you can get a new heart right now.
Okay. So say you got one. Now what? Because <laughs> if you're like me, you're saying, yeah, yeah, okay, theologically, I get it. I got a new heart. That's great. I still don't feel very pure of heart. I still don't see enough of God. I'm still duplicitous. What do I do? Is there any good news for me? There is. After God's already given us a new heart, we can grow in purity of heart. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as it is God who is at work in us to will and to want. I think passages like that one show us we can partner with God in things like, in works like, growing in heart purity. And so I want to offer to you three ways you can consider growing in purity of heart. Three ways you can help purify your heart by God's grace. And the first is this, examine your commitment to God. Begin by examining your commitment to God. Purity of heart entails singular commitment to God. So we need to examine our commitment to Him. And I have, I have friendship with the world particularly in mind here. So remember James 4 that we looked at. Let me just throw it up on the overhead again with you. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the pure of heart are single-minded. The impure are double-minded. The double-minded, they will two things. They want two things instead of one. And when we look back at verse 4, we remember the double-mindedness James has in mind here is, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the double-minded man of verse 8 has their heart, has his heart divided between the world and God. So this is where we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine our commitment to God. And, and I want to put it to you like this. I got to try to get past some of our, our, our you know, we, we, we just make excuses for ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people all the time, don't we? Oh, yeah, 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 but I'm not. Like, some. Okay, like, just don't compare yourself. Set that aside. Just you and God, okay? Look at the Lord here. And, and this is how I want to try to help you see it. This is, I, I got this from Sinclair Ferguson, and I thought it was so helpful. I'm paraphrasing. Great things like God can be completely obscured by small things, if small things are brought close to your face. You know what I'm talking about, right? You, you, you can't see the forest for the trees. The issue in a situation like this isn't how important something is in and of itself, but is how closely you fix your gaze upon it. So, when we hold the things of this world like this, or like, like this. <laughs> when we keep things up like that, whether they're sports or politics or our job or our kids or a girlfriend or entertainment or people's opinions of us, whatever it is, when we hold them up to us, they obscure our sight of God. Their value grows out of proportion. They seem so important. And we commit some spiritual adultery. So one way we can grow in purity of heart is to examine our commitment to God over the things of this world. What do you love too much, even if it's a good thing. Second, and I'll be really brief with this one because I'm going to spend a little bit more time with the third one, and we're going long. So second, 
strive for holiness. Another way we can see God, kind of similar to the first, but slightly different, strive for holiness. And I draw, I draw this one from Hebrews 12, 14 through 16, namely verse 14, but just look at it here. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. The point of it is, is strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So here it is, in other words, blessed are the holy of heart, for they shall see God. There's a, there's a moral purity and holiness which fits us to see God better because he is moral and holy. It tunes us in to God's perfections and it fits our heart to be satisfied by them. So I'll let you go home and, and do the homework on that one. Strive for holiness. Third and final way I want to, to hold out for you is how you can grow in purity of heart is walk by faith. Walk by faith. Let me spend a few minutes here because I think this is particularly hard. I'm sorry, I don't have all the scriptures on the overhead for you with this one, so you just gotta listen and, and write them down if you need the references. Acts 15, verse nine. Acts 15, verse nine uh, says, God made no distinction, no distinction between us and them. He means, Peter, Peter talking to me, Jews and Gentiles. God made no distinction between us, having cleansed their hearts, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Here we learn that the heart is purified by faith. We already talked about this formatively at salvation when it's cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but then in an ongoing way as we live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, walk by faith, not by sight. Walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. So before we're born again, we did nothing from faith and we had impure hearts, but now that we're saved through faith in Christ, who according to Titus 2.14, gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. So purity of heart grows in our life as we walk by faith, as we follow Christ by faith. Are you following all that? I'm trying to connect the dots here. This is not just, I'm trying to show you, this is not just Jace making something up here. (laughs) This is God's word to us and so, let me connect one more dot, and then I'll and then I'll try to illustrate it for you. Um, I, I primarily I think this means believing God's word over and against what we see and feel in this life. Believing God's word over and against what we see and feel, and and I would take you to Second Peter one three uh, to prove that. Second Peter one three. Um, Peter says His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through, here's how we get it, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, he's given us everything for life and godliness by seeing him, by having him, by being in his presence. It's all from God, it's in God. Well, great, that sounds wonderful. How do we see him? How do I get that knowledge? How do I grow in seeing his glory? Verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. It's through faith in the promises of God, the word of God, that we are purified in heart. Are you following me? We're just trying to trace these scriptures out here. So let me show you what this looks like then practically with an example from my own life and, and then we'll close. This, this, is, this is fresh. I was confessing this to the guys this morning. Um, Jenny and I have been working on a, a financial project and yesterday uh, we discovered I had, I had made a mistake. A mistake in researching things and communicating with Jenny and and, uh, and it threw off all our calculations and plans and it was disorienting and discouraging and, and, uh, and this is not the first time I've made a mistake like this. So this morning, 
I woke up just feeling awful. Anyone else ever wake up just feeling awful? Good. Not that you feel awful. (laughs) Just glad I'm not the only one. Here's how I felt. I'll give you two little slices of the pie of my heart. Here's how I felt, and then how I tried to fight with faith to see God in this. First, I felt exposed. I felt like God finding Adam, in other words, I felt like Adam would have felt when God found him naked. Because my sin had exposed me, and I was ashamed of not being more careful. I was embarrassed. I was not providing well for my wife. I was not protecting her well. I was, not, I was tempting her. So I just felt like, man, what a, what a pathetic person. So I'm, I'm fighting for faith to see God. God, I got to get up and preach this, Lord. So how do I do that when I just feel exposed? And the passage that came to my mind was Psalm 139, that the Lord has already searched me and knows me. He knows my frame. This is not surprising to him. This is not a new exposure to him. He knows me better than I know myself and still he loved me enough to send his son to die for me. So Psalm 32.1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And through that, I start to see not just the truth of these promises, the God who gives them, that he's gracious, and loving, and understanding, and sweet to me, a sinner. I also, this is the second slice of the pie and then we'll be done here, I also felt just incredibly weak this morning. Like if I can't manage my own household well enough, how how am I supposed to get up and manage the household of God today? I get up there and preach. I got nothing here, Lord. Now, those of you who are more attuned to caring and the sermon, you'll be like, yeah, you're poor in spirit. That's a good place to be. But, but you know when you're actually poor in spirit, you don't feel good. You feel like I'm, I'm bankrupt. And I felt weak there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I got the first piece down as I'm getting ready for the day. And then I'm, I'm driving in this morning and I'm, I'm just like, Lord, I can't do this. I, I just don't know how to get up there and preach this. And I felt like the Lord say, just from my illustration, can you get up and read a boring and dull paper? I thought, well, I answered, I think I can do that, Lord. Yes, I can do that. And then the Lord brought a passage to mind that I've been meditating on recently. Psalm 37, verse 5. Well, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. And I thought, that's it, Lord. I don't have to get up there and do anything. I just got to read my dull paper. You'll act. I don't change people. I don't build the house of God. You do. You'll act. You're strong. And you're strong enough to even work through a weakling like me, and that's good news. So I get up here and I read my paper, trusting God's at work. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. But I want you to see, it's not just the promises. I'm seeing God, he's a strong and mighty actor. And that's what's leading me to worship him. And really, I'm seeing the glory of God and I'm being satisfied. He's meeting needs I have. And seeing him, I'm being transformed and you can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. 
from glory to glory until that day when faith will finally be made sight and we will see his face, Revelation 22, and his name will be on our foreheads and there will be no more night and we will not see the light or need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will be our light. He'll meet that need. He'll satisfy the soul. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, Lord, we cried out earlier in song that we want a new work in us, Lord. New wine, new power. But we've got to yield to your careful hand. We have to trust ourselves to you, Lord. And so, that's what faith is all about. Trusting your word more than our feelings or more than our sight. And so God, help make us a people of faith, Lord, that live and walk by faith and in so doing, not just use the word of God, but through the word of God, we see you in your glory and are satisfied. God, I pray for people at whose heart this morning, I know you're just standing there knocking, saying, as you do in Revelation, open the door and I will come in and I will sup with you. I'll I'll break bread with you, I'll fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray for those who are afraid to open that door, who are afraid to humble themselves and open that door, God, I pray you give them the grace. I pray that you would, Lord, just draw them with your love. Call sweetly to them, God. Help them open it and receive that new heart. Let them see you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.